Our scripture reading this evening is from Revelation 22, verses 6 through 13. The angel said this. Here we go. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written on this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The Word of God. I'm excited because tonight... We are going to attempt to land the plane of the book of Revelation. And if you've been with us, it's been quite the journey. It's probably been the most stretching um, challenge for me to preach through this book. Um, I've, I've learned a ton. I hope you've learned a ton too. But sometimes I feel like, you know, we've spent um, many months together going through this book. And there was a lot from the beginning of Revelation that um, we may have already forgotten or, or want to be reminded of. And so... What I want to do tonight is sort of take a bird's eye view of what we've been looking at, because I think it's really important that we don't miss the forest for the trees. Um, Before we dive in next week to Paul's letter to the Philippians, I think it'll be really good for us to sort of just take a, a big perspective on what is this book and what does it mean for us today. And if you've ever, um, ridden in a car with me, you know that I'm a pretty good driver. Um, I just have, you know, I'm pretty confident. I've never really been in a crash. Uh, I have some speeding tickets, but, you know. Um, and recently, I watched the movie Top Gun, the new one. Anybody seen that movie? Yeah, it was pretty fun. You know that scene? I don't want to give too many spoilers, but you know the scene where Tom Cruise is trying to train the young guns um, and to fly through the canyon in like two minutes and 30 seconds or whatever? Maybe this is a personality flaw, but I kind of feel like I could do that. And so the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, God, just put me in, coach. Like, I could do it. I knew I could do it. And uh, I just sort of have, that's part, always been a part of my personality. I just feel like I can, I can accomplish things that probably don't have the skills for. And so I want you to imagine for a second, all right, I'm in, a, I'm, I'm in the pilot seat of a bush plane. You're getting in the bush plane, and we're going to fly over the forest, and then somehow I'm going to attempt to land the plane, Okay. So I say that because we're going to cover a lot of ground really quickly, and uh, hopefully we don't crash. So here we go. Here's the timeline. We've been going through the book of Revelation. Let's take a big picture. We've got in the beginning the prologue, which, which well, way back to when we started, uh, sort of introduces what is happening. John is on this island called Patmos, 
And he's beginning to have this vision from God to write down these words. We have the, th- the seven churches. So Paul, uh, Jesus gives these specific words that, uh, that John is supposed to write down and share with these seven churches, which we're going to just briefly look over real quick. Um, we have the lamb unsealing the scroll, and, and uh, this is when the vision, sort of the peeking behind the curtain, the opening of the window metaphors we've been using. That's chapters 4 through 11. There's the cosmic conflict. There's the bowls of wrath and the fall of Babylon, uh, which, by the way, we're going to continue to dive deep on Sundays. So if you're really just loving Revelation, keep coming on Sundays because we're not done yet. And then 1925, man on the horse leading up to the coming of the city of God, which we talked about last week. And then the epilogue, which we will touch on tonight. What I want to do is just go back for a minute, okay, if you will, and go back and take a quick snapshot of these seven churches, just as a reminder and to sort of get the big picture of what Jesus is trying to communicate to his people. Remember, they were letters written to very specific contexts in a very specific time, but those words do have bearing when we interpret them for us today. And so we're going to look at a few of those things as we go. Um, So we have the church in Ephesus, okay? We remember back, the church in Ephesus, yet I hold this against you. Remember what, what Jesus often does when he's giving John these words is he'll give them a compliment sandwich, right? He'll say a bunch of nice things about how their church has been faithful or how they've held solid doctrine or how they've loved people well, and then he'll say, yet I have this thing against you. And then he brings in sometimes a pretty striking rebuke. In the church of Ephesus, he says to them, yet I have this thing against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. This is a question that I think all of us can resonate with. Have we forgotten the love we had at first? If you think back to your first lover, or even more specifically to the moment when you came to faith, if you're a believer and you came to faith in Jesus, can you remember the excitement, the zeal, or maybe even the faith of your youth if you came to Christ as a, as a young person? The, the faith that can move mountains, right? As a, as a child, there's something so beautiful and pure about that love. And so the big theme that we talked about was remembrance, remembering that love, being reminded that no matter how much information we have about God, if we do not have love, then we are missing out on what God has for us. I think that many churches um, today, right, there's that that metaphor of removing churches from the lampstand, right? I think that many of them are dying perhaps because they have forgotten their first love, other things have taken the place of, of that affection. And because of that, because of the misordered love, perhaps God has removed them from the lampstand. If you remember, uh, when we looked at this, I thought this was kind of cool. I showed this picture of Ephesus that this is currently happening today, right? Which is kind of wild. But Ephesus is going to be reconnected to its ancient harbor with the enlargement of this massive canal. So over time, what was once a harbor city which had water, had, has dried up over time, over thousands of years. And so what they're attempting to do is absolutely remarkable. Actually, it's 3.7 miles that they're going to have to dig up, which is pretty intense. Okay, so 3.7 miles is a lot of digging. They're going to do whatever they can after a thousand years 
being so far from who they once were, they're making an effort to reconnect with who they used to be. I don't know if that, in a way, maybe resonates with you. Perhaps a word for you, that maybe at one point you felt deeply connected with God in your walk with Jesus. That you found yourself with a, with a healthy and vibrant prayer life. But perhaps now you're walking, in a sense, feeling distant from God or feeling like you're in a season of spiritual dryness. And perhaps you feel like maybe you'll never get back the thing you once had. I want you to hear this again as a reminder of God's love for you. That God will dig a canal no matter how long the distance. And he is pursuing you and pursuing that relationship. And no matter how far away you might feel, God's love for you has not run dry. I believe that that canal is what can bring streams of living water that can renew our heart and bring us back in a vibrant relationship with Jesus. Is that you tonight? Because I believe that God's love can find you again. It never left you in the first place. So remember, our practice that week was remembrance, to remember the moments when God moved you, to remember being swept up in worship, to remember that prophetic word that was spoken to you, to remember the time when God answered a prayer in a massive way, to remember the zeal and joy of the faith of your youth, to remember how God used you to help someone, and to remember the love you had at first. The next church was the church in Smyrna. And this was a church that was different from all the other churches because it was a poor church, um, a church that was afflicted and persecuted, a church that was deeply suffering. And as they found themselves already in the midst of this great difficulty, in the midst of hard times, Jesus sends them a letter. So imagine being a church that is facing immense persecution and then having someone read you a letter penned by Christ himself. Right? If, if the words of Jesus were spoken to you, you can imagine just the, the power of that. One of the things that was at the heart of this letter was that Jesus, uh, is his insistence that God is indeed a suffering God. He points to himself and he says that he is the first and the last. He is the one who is dead but now lives. That our God is one who suffered. Our God is not like the other gods of the world. What other God would, would suffer for the people he loves? But he suffers with us and he suffered for us. And that was a profound comfort to the church in Smyrna. We have the church of Pergamum. Um, if the Ephesian church was guilty of elevating truth above love, uh, perhaps you could say that the Pergamum church elevated love above truth. Okay? Uh, God's truth con confronts all of life. And there are so many times when we desperately need the truth of God to illuminate the reality around us. I told a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I think is such a powerful, powerful illustration. Um, if you don't know much about Bonhoeffer, he was a genius. I think the German theologian Karl Barth said that he was a genius when he was 21 years old. Um, and Bonhoeffer had started this community. It was like a seminary. He was radically discipling people. And he was, he was such a gifted um, this person, gifted in discipleship. And he was training and teaching and, and filling young people with God's truth. And one day, a young historian by the name of Wilhelm Niesel, um, 
who had heard of Bonhoeffer had questioned him and asked him the question, why are you so intense? Has anybody ever asked you that question? Why are you so crazy and intense about this? And Bonhoeffer said, hey, come with me. He took him to a boat, and they went across the water and up to this hill, and they climbed all this way, and this, this historian's exhausted. He's like, why are we doing this? He didn't, Bonhoeffer didn't say a word. Went all the way up until they looked over, and they could see um, thousands of soldiers who were being trained in the Third Reich. And Bonhoeffer looked at the historian, and he said, you see what's, what's happening down there? What we're doing back there has to be stronger than what they're doing. Because if we cannot see a work of God in, within God's people, then something is not going to be able to confront the evils of this world. We have to have God's truth be stronger than what's happening there. A vision for true discipleship is that it is forming people, forming people in the ways of Christ that must be stronger than the powers of this world. And we are going to be formed by cultural forces, whether we like it or not. We are all being formed by something, and many of us are unaware of that. And so we, if we are not being formed by God's truth, if that is not something that is constantly being poured into us, then ultimately we're not going to be able to face those things. Our formation in the truth of Christ must be stronger. Next, the church of Thyatira. Um, this letter is the longest and probably the most challenging, if you remember. It's the harshest critique Okay, so he's addressing the city of Thyatira that Jesus commends five things, their love, their faith, their service, uh, their perseverance, their increased ministry. You're like, oh, you're doing great, right? And then he says, and yet, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, the, the reference to Jezebel, if you remember, Jezebel wasn't the, the literal Jezebel. So we have this woman in the Old Testament in 1st, 2nd Kings. We hear stories about Jezebel, who was this sort of queen. Um, she was the wicked queen in Israel's history. She, she was the power behind the throne, so she was the wife of the weak and kind of puny king Ahab. Um, she had power over him. She manipulated him. She sort of used him to accomplish her evil schemes. And she led the people away from God and established a priesthood to Baal. She killed and hunted God's prophets. She essentially was um, a murderer and evil personified. Okay, so there's, there's the picture of Jezebel. But what we find out about what was happening in this city is that the Jezebel character sort of rose to power on her charisma, her personality, her ability to teach, but what she was teaching was not that of God. It was attractive it was seductive. It was what the culture perhaps was pushing at that time. You know, we live in a culture now where there is many things that are vying for our attention, that are seductive, that are nice, and, and maybe we want to believe them, but the reality is they are leading us farther and farther away from God. There are two areas specifically. It was the separation of the spirit and the flesh, and it was a Gnostic teaching and she would twist the teachings to say, you need to participate fully. This is the spirit and flesh thing, right? You need to participate and go to the temple and do what those other sinners are doing and participate in prostitution and sexual immorality. Like this is all part of what it means to fill in the blank. And so she would twist the teachings and people were buying into this. And she was leading people away from God. Now, 
The rebuke is a rebuke, but it is one out of a place of love. Every time there's a rebuke brought, it is because God is calling his people back to himself. And so what's interesting about this church, if you remember, um, is that if you study church history, the church in, in Thyatira eventually had its lampstand removed. Okay, there's that metaphor again, which means it got sucked into another prophetic movement, um, and this time it was by a man, okay, so then it got lost to uh, Montanism. It was a prophet who said they had better teachings than the apostles, and, and actually, believe it or not, the church died very quickly under this new leader. They didn't learn from their mistake. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, okay? So God in his mercy and kindness is calling us to repentance because he doesn't want us to go the way of death. And that's what happened the moment they did not repent of their ways. Church of Sardis, if you remember, this is the wake-up call, okay? There's the waken, strengthen what remains, and remember, The church of Sardis was not alive enough to have enemies or confront heresy. It had simply become the model of non-offensive faith. Another way to put it is that they were apathetic, okay? They had a sort of spiritual apathy. And um, there was this warning, okay, that we have. It says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. And so if you remember the city of Sardis, it is a, uh, a city that... Um, was built on a, on a hillside, like a huge hillside. It was really well defended against enemies because of its location. It was a very difficult city to attack. But one day, um, while they were sleeping, it was the middle of the night, the Persian army climbed the cliffs, and one of Cyrus's soldiers scaled the rock face in the dead of night and found the lone guard at the bottleneck of the path sound asleep. This was the one weak point, right? The one place where if they could have just defended this one bottleneck, they would have been just fine. But because he was asleep, no coincidence there, wake up, right? Because he was asleep, he killed him, quietly signaling the Persian army and showed them the way up the winding path in the rock face. And in one night, Sardis fell. The city that could not be penetrated fell to the ground. This is in 549 B.C., uh, failing to learn this lesson in 214 BC, it fell again to Antich- Antichus the Great. Jesus' words here are matching up what the readers would have understood historically. And he says, If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. This is a call for the church to wake up. Wake up from your spiritual apathy. And lastly, we got two more actually, Laodicea, if you remember at the foot of Mount Cadmus, this is uh, 8,400 feet, it was snow capped for nine months out of the year, so they had the best, most cold drinking water in this location. Um, six miles away was, uh, to the north was Heropolis, had the most extensive natural hot springs. People would go there and they would bathe in these hot springs to heal their wounds, to heal their sickness or, or soreness. It was a place of relaxation. Um, the hot water would soothe your aches and pains and whatnot. And so what you have here um, is Colossae known for its cold water, Heropolis known for its hot water. And if you, live in, if you go to the city of Laodicea today, the ancient city, 
you can literally stand in the center of the ruins, and I, I forgot to put the picture in, it's a cool picture, but you can see both cities from a distance. Imagine standing there and being able to hear and read these words. I know your deeds. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You see, Laodicea had a hard time getting water to their source because the closest source was five miles away. And so what they would do is they created these aqueducts, which is a great idea in theory, but the problem is this water is traveling for such a long time that guess what you get? You get lukewarm water. And not only that, you get dirty, gross, smelly, sometimes water that will make you sick. And so it's no surprise when Jesus says, I want to spit you out of my mouth, right? And the, this uh, letter continues to go in verse 17. It says, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. Now, this letter is filled with these references to prosperity and wealth, if we remember, and uh, it's a challenge to the wealthy church that has not leveraged their resources for God's kingdom. They haven't been generous. They've been blind to their greed. And Jesus says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Don't put your hope in money or stuff. You were created for more. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So if you remember, I asked the question, and we looked at some statistics, that basically just about all of us fall into the category of rich by the world's standards. And so this is a word for all of us. And the word is two things. Be generous with what you've been given, because it all belongs to God. And be grateful. Practice gratitude for all that God has given you. Verse 9, it says, This is the way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In verse 20, it says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, open the door. I will come and eat with that person and they with me. Friends, life in the kingdom of God is an invitation for you to participate. It's not a passive thing that is a hell, get out a free card. It is a, you were invited to participate in the mission of God here and now. And Jesus is standing at the door knocking. There is an invitation. Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans, hey, rich people, I'm here. Let me in. Philadelphia, last but not least. This was an encouragement to, for the suffering, those who are persecuted, to have endurance and perseverance, which is really one of the overarching themes of all uh, the book of Revelation, to persevere and to endure in the midst of suffering. Right? You can hear Jesus' pastoral heart here. He says in verse 3, verse 8, I know you have little strength, but you have kept my word. With what little strength you have, you have kept my word. Verse 12, the one who is victorious will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and never again will they leave it. Okay, so this, this is a cool, cool little thing. I had, to, I had to do one more throwback, right? So the pillars, right? This idea um, that I will make you a pillar of the temple of my God. He leaves us with this image, this image that I think is really profound, and I want to show you a picture here. Um, this is of modern Philadelphia, okay? So this is where the city once was. 
This is the ruins of the church of St. John from the 6th century. And what do you notice of the ruins that are left are the only things that are standing. You have these giant, massive pillars. Though the rest of the thing has fallen to pieces, the pillars still stand. I believe that Jesus is calling his church to be pillars, to be the things that will sustain to the end of the age. And interesting, they were built on a foundation that could move intentionally because of earthquakes. Okay, so they were designed to withstand earthquakes. Right? This is, this is part of what the church is going to go through throughout history. There are going to be difficult seasons. There are going to be seasons of persecution. Depending on where you live in the, in the world today, there are places where Christians are persecuted immensely. And yet, Jesus is calling the church to be a pillar This is the image that Jesus gives us. For those who have ears to hear, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. So, we have these seven churches. Hope that was a helpful refresher and reminder of of what Jesus was trying to communicate through John we have in chapter 4, John begins to take a look into heaven. Okay? He says, he begins, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. John's not referring here to a far away place. Okay? He's on earth, he's on the island of Patmos where he's given this vision. Remember, Patmos was this rocky, rocky um, island in the Mediterranean Sea where Romans had prison, prisons for prisoners. It wasn't a very nice place to live, that's for sure. John is 80 years old, so that's, that's a, another challenge. He refused to worship Caesar as God. Even in his old age, he held strong and did not bow a knee, and he was sent to exile. But he's given this door. And for John, heaven is not some faraway place, but it's actually another dimension of reality. It is here. It is close at hand. He is not just telling of a future reality, but he's telling us of a present reality. John, throughout the rest of the book, continues to pull back the curtain so that we can see what is going on here and now in the spiritual world. We get sort of glances and windows into what is happening in the church's history. I've presented an amillennial perspective on this where we see that from the moment Jesus came in the incarnation to the moment when he comes again in the second coming, we are living in this millennium, this time in which there will be ups and downs in the church And that the encouragement for the church to endure stands for us as well. He's pulling back the curtain. Things are not as they seem. He's telling us of a present and future reality. And then we have a lot of vivid imagery, which we spent a lot of time unpacking numerology. We unpacked a lot of these images. I'll quickly go over a few reminders because they're kind of cool. Chapter 1, One like the Son of Man standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. We talked about that. Chapter 4, a throne surrounded by four living creatures full of eyes, right? Tons of eyes everywhere. Chapter 5, the Lamb as if slain in the middle of the throne, seven eyes and seven horns. A woman in chapter 12 clothed with the sun giving birth to a a child. A great red dragon seeks to kill the child. Chapter 13, a beast from the sea, ten horns, seven heads, followed by the beast from the earth, two horns like a lamb, but speaking like a dragon. 
In 17, come back June 26, I think this is my text, so I'm excited about it. But there's another woman sitting on a scarlet bee, seven heads, ten horns, um, holding in her hand a cup of abominations. 21, holy city as a bride, coming down out of heaven and having the glory of God. So we have all kinds, I, those are just a few of them, some of the highlights. But we have all kinds of these images and these things that John is seeing, and we're doing our best to interpret them together, understanding what are the spiritual realities that they are pointing to. And if you remember, the original audience of this book, all citizens at the time were to go to the temple, built in honor of Caesar, take a pinch of incense, throw it into the fire, and say, Caesar Curios, which is Caesar is Lord. They were to bow down to the king of the earth at the time. And the emperor Domitian didn't care much else as long as he bowed a knee to the Caesar. But for John, there was only one Lord, Jesus Christ the King. And in his old age, he was not going to bow down. And so he's sent to exile. He's given these visions. And he's able to then communicate that to these churches who are in desperate need of encouragement. And also for us who also need this encouragement today. And so we see and we get finally down to the main point of the book. And this is where I want to land the plane. The main idea and point of the book of Revelation is this repeated refrain we see over and over again. Look, I am coming soon. Another translation says, I am coming quickly. Behold, he is coming. That's in, that's in the beginning of Revelation, verse 7. And then at the end in verse 22, we see this refrain, Look, I am coming soon, over and over and over again. Here's the main point. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is coming not just will come one day, but is coming now, is arriving now. This process is happening now. This is in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is a kairos moment, a moment when the kingdom of God is arriving, and we are called and invited to participate in what the kingdom is doing here and now. The second coming of Jesus. Yes, he is indeed coming again. Don't, don't misinterpret me here. Yes, Jesus is coming again, but he is also arriving in the kingdom of God now. And that is something that we participate in. The prologue of Revelation is, uh, in verse 8, is the Alpha and the Omega. And then in the end, in Revelation 22, 6, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Okay, this idea, um, the Greek word is ark, which it's, it means beginning, but it also means I am the archetype, okay? So what that means is that everything has a beginning and takes shape in him. Everything comes from the beginning, the alpha. And the word end in the Greek is telos. It means the inherent destiny of a thing. It's like an acorn turning into an oak tree, okay? The inherent destiny of an acorn is to become an oak tree, so we have this idea, Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the end. We get to the end of the book, and there's actually an ending. It's not just a cliffhanger. It's not a, there will be more books revealed to you later. It actually says there will be no more book. This is it. This is what is going to happen in the end. He is the archetype and the destiny. 
the beginning and the end. I'll leave you with this, and then we'll take about five minutes to answer some questions. Um, the book of Revelation teaches us that there's an end to the story, and the good news of that is that God wins. There will be trouble. There will be suffering. There will be seasons that are really hard, and they're going to require us to lean and press in uh, to our faith in Jesus. But in the end, all of that suffering will be worth every tear that was shed because in the end, every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more pain. There will be a new heaven, a new earth. All things will be made new. All things will be restored. And God's story will be complete. You see, the Bible is not just an instruction manual. It's not just a, an encyclopedia of information. It is a story. It is the story of God from the beginning in creation all the way to its consummation in the end when God wins. Until then, I think it is important for us to remember that Jesus is not a means to an end. He's not a means to create institution, not a means to create power, not a means to manipulate or shame others, not a means to get political figures elected, not a means for wealth and resources. He is not the means in any way, shape, or form, but Jesus is the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the whole thing, the whole point of the book of Revelation. In fact, the whole point of the Bible points back to Jesus, who has existed from the beginning of time itself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in eternity. Jesus is the end. For those who have ears to hear, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as it's challenged us, as it's pushed us to seek to understand what's happening in our world today. As we read the news and see things that are disturbing, whether it's um, mass shootings, whether it's war, whether it's um, oh, so many things that sear our consciousness, and many times we don't know what to do about it, may we be reminded of, of your sovereignty in the midst of it, that in the midst of all the struggle and strife, in the midst of the church being persecuted in places throughout the world, Lord, that we understand that there is an ending to this story, that all things will be redeemed. Help us to say yes to that invitation to participate in what you're doing here and now in the world. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.